Multiple Myeloma Hub podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the Multiple Myeloma Hub podcast. Today, we'll be speaking to our steering committee member, Nikhil Munshi, from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, US. We asked him to speak about genomics of high-risk myeloma. Hello, I'm Nikhil Munshi uh, from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at the Harvard Medical School. And uh, we're going to discuss about genomics of high-risk multiple myeloma. Now, when we talk about high-risk multiple myeloma, there are three important points. First is, who is high-risk myeloma? Second is, what um, characteristics this type of myeloma has? And then a little bit about how do we handle or treat these patients uh, in a different way. So high-risk myeloma originally was described as people who do die within two years. So when the disease is so aggressive, um, those are called high-risk myeloma. And, and that definition more or less still remains true, except with the newer treatments and newer options we have. Um, now the, the limit is stretched mortality within three years. And so we have to keep that in mind that with better treatment, even high-risk myeloma patients are doing well. And then the definition may change over time. The second component of high risk also are there are clinical uh, features that determines whether a patient is high risk or not. So for example, um, patients with plasma cell leukemia, patients who have extra majority disease or CNS involvement, patients who have a very high LDH, circulating tumor cells, not necessarily just leukemia. So there are also um, definition of high risk that involves clinical features, patients with plasma cell leukemia, extramedullary disease, um, CNS disease, um, high LDH. Um, and, and this group of patients may or may not have uh, same features, but they do behave with a shorter mortality. And then there are response criteria which can define high risk patients. So if patient has no response, to a combination of immunomodulated drug and proteasome inhibitor, where normally 99% patients respond, that is functionally high-risk patient population. And then there are patients with high, quick progression or relapse, et cetera. And so there are definitions of high-risk which are driven by such clinical or functional features. But most importantly and most widely accepted features are the genomic features in patient population. So patients with T414, T1416 myeloma, most importantly, 17P deletion, and more recently, 1Q gain and 1P deletion. These are the fish identified changes that defines high risk myeloma. More recently, there is a further def uh, revision of what is the ISS staging system called revised ISS staging system, where the ISS stage is combined with cytogenetics and LDH and made into more composite uh, classification. And here, um, patients are considered revised ISS1 if they have um, ISS stage 1, normal LDH, and normal FISH. They are classified as RISS3 if they are ISS3 with abnormal FISH and or abnormal LDH, and everybody else is in the middle. And then one more newer point that we have to keep in mind from genomics point of view is that clonality matters. So for 17P deletion, if patient has 60% or greater subclonality, then only it is a poor risk 
group. Otherwise, they may not have as high risk as we otherwise call with 17P. So we have to remember that in mind. And further progress in this area has been to now describe this coexistent high-risk feature, which may make the disease uh, potentially even uh, what would be called ultra-high-risk. So a patient has P53 deletion with P53 mutation, a biallelic P53 involvement that comes in this double-hit group. Or patient has ISS stage 3 with amplification of 1Q that belongs to this group. Small number of patients, 5% but they may have a poor outcome. <clears throat> now, subsequently, in last few years, there have been other attempts at defining high risk. There was a um, gene expression profiling done. Uh, there is a 70 gene signature from UAMS. There's another 92 gene signature from HOVON. I won't go de into details of those signatures. However, um, they do identify high risk group. The, the interesting biologically and also clinically point is, that between these two 70 and 92 gene signature, there are only two common genes, which tells us there is so much redundancy in system and there may be still great need for improvement. Now, moving forward from these risk features, when we look at biology of uh, high risk, the sequencing, DNA sequencing has helped. There are a number of mutations. Some are recurrent, small number, uh, less, are re less recurrent. Um, NRAS, KRAS, P53, BRAF, TIS3 are more frequent ones. None of them by themselves are yet coming out as being considered high-risk disease. However, if you look at total number of mutation, they are defined as high-risk myeloma. And for exome sequencing, which is what most of the earlier data was, um, uh, uh, mean median number of uh, mutations are in the range of 50, 58, and we have to keep that in mind. But moving fast forward to now current state where we do whole genome sequencing as a routine, we have analyzed large number of whole genome sequencing data, and we find that in, on an average, the median, there are over 7,000 mutations in these patients. And, and there are around 700 plus um, in insertion deletion indels which are present. And there is some difference in the number of mutation between myeloma, various myeloma subtypes with 14, 16 having the highest number of mutation. Now, all this in whole genome, all these mutations are present in um, uh, what I would call intergenic area, non-coding region, because majority of the genome is considered as a non-coding genome. And so that's very important that the non-coding mutations also may have significance. Um, and number of hotspots have been identified, but the bottom line message still remains that if total number of mutations are high, it carries poor prognosis. And that has become one of the very important criteria for us to study this high-risk disease, number of mutations, and then look at what regions they have. The third part in this analysis ends up being also, what causes this mutation, the signatures of mutations? And we have in earlier days identified two signatures called Epobac signature. That's a uh, family of uh, proteins that are important in B cells and plasma cells. And their overactivity and causing mutation is one class. And the other one is called age related. And Epobac has been well described. 
to have prognostic significance and considered to have to involve high-risk disease. And in in um, uh, in our uh, data set, we find that both PFS and OS is much shorter in patients who have epoback signature being present. And I think we have to keep that in our understanding. Uh, in our own data set, we find that epoback signature does drive high-risk disease and that uh, this signature is clustered in this group of patient population. Moreover, uh, if we look at all different subgroups of myeloma driven by cytogenetics in fish, epoback signature at a, at a middle and later part of the disease progression, uh, which is when we treat the patient, does play a significant role. Uh, it is not a clonal signature, so it doesn't start very early, but during the later progression of the disease, it plays a significant role. And this brings another important question for us to remember, that uh, this high-risk disease is not, is not a static thing. Patients are diagnosed with high-risk disease. And there's a subgroup of patients, it's a smaller subgroup of patients, would be around 15%, depending upon what definition we use. However, over progression, over time of patients' um, disease process, patients do become high risk later on. And so it is important that these measurements of high risk disease is performed multiple times during treatment uh, uh, process in a patient. That patient who was not a high risk at diagnosis at first, second, or third relapse can now become high risk and behave like a high risk disease with. Uh, uh, frequent relapses and less response to treatment, etc. And so I think we have to keep that in mind. Um, also importantly, we have identified and studied as part of the genomics of high risk, what processes actually, what molecular pathways are driven or driving this high risk phenotype. And we have identified homologous recombination, non-homologous adjoining. Um, uh, certain genes, uh, uh, some the nucleus activities, and, and also epoback activity as playing important role in driving the high-risk phenotype. And I think uh, keeping that in mind is, a, is very important uh, for us to now begin to, to, to directly target high-risk phenotypes in this patient population. Because if these pathways are causing the high-risk disease, we should be able to target those pathways inhibit them and then allow the cancer cells to sort of become static so that treatments would work well and the cells won't have an ability to evolve into a resistant phenotype or more aggressive phenotype. Now, just a brief word on um, do we, why do we need to know about high-risk disease? And the fundamental question is, do we treat them differently? Uh, and the answer is that with all the newer information we have and the treatment options we have, we are beginning to treat high-risk patients differently. Um, so one of the first thing at the newly diagnosed stage is that we use the novel agents earlier on. More importantly, we are beginning to use four-drug regimen. So besides using, giving patients the standard um, proteasome inhibitor, immunomodulated drug, and dexamethasone, in high-risk patients, now we quite frequently add an antibody to it, any CD38 targeting antibody. So it's a four-drug regimen um, that plays an important role in getting remission in this patient population. 
There is also clear data that high-dose chemotherapy at the present time does help get patient into remission. Now, uh, there has been some information that the transplant doesn't help high-risk disease. That is not entirely true. It does not help at the same extent that it helps standard risk, but it still makes a difference. So it is an important component. And the reason to do four drug regimen and high-dose therapy is because our aim or the goal is to get MRD negativity. Um, our, our data has shown that, and this was the IFM-DFCI study where half of the patient got RVD and half of the patient got RVD with transplant. And, and yes, RVD with transplant group uh, does better than RVD alone. However, if we look at patients who got high-risk disease, and then we look at this whole group of patients uh, and, and see how the high-risk patient population did in this group, if patients got MRD negativity, then both the high-risk and standard-risk patients do very similarly, suggesting that getting MRD negativity might be able to overcome some of the high-risk features that may carry poor prognosis. And so the, our emphasis now for using four-drug regimen, for using transplant, is to get um, them into MRD negativity. And finally, what we do for maintenance, for example, is that we do um, give two drug maintenance, which is combined proteasome inhibitor and uh, immunomodulator um, uh, lenalidomide um, on an extended period of time to suppress the good response we have gotten. And so this clearly uh, separates uh, the whole uh, uh, algorithm of treating all high-risk disease a little bit different than standard risk disease. And my final word would be, so when we get a patient newly diagnosed, how do we investigate to identify high versus low risk? What we do is we do um, uh, mutational analysis, copy number analysis, and chromosome rearrangement, whichever technology you use, whether it is sequencing based or fish and something else. And this will allow, and, and then if needed and uh, available gene expression profile um, by RNA sequencing. And this will divide patient into low risk and high risk. If it's high risk, we treat it differently versus low risk. When we are ready for maintenance, this is when we look for evaluation of the residual clone, um, IGH sequencing to look for MRD negativity and positivity, and the algorithms for their management are well described separately. And then finally, when patients relapse, we still repeat the original diagnostic work up to extent where we look for new mutation, we look for new clonal evolution, and then decide on targeted treatment. So this is how we, I would suggest, we analyze the patient over the lifetime of the course of the disease to get the best response and probably extend the survival of this patient population. Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.